This is Talks with Petri Show, and I'm your host, Petri. Today our guest is Hannu Ryöppänen. Welcome, Hannu. Thank you very much. You are an angel investor. Uh, you have multiple board positions from startups to multinational corporations. And uh, during your career, uh, which spans over four decades, you have also worked as a group CFO for IKEA. You worked closely with Ingmar Kamprad. Uh, the founder of IKEA for more than 10 years. What's your first memory of working with Ingvar Kamprad? Well, that actually goes back to the interview with him in 1985 in Amsterdam, where he had a holding board uh, board meeting, and I uh, was then uh, invited to, to, to join him. And of course, as a finance person, I tried to impress him about my knowledge about finance. And at the time, IKEA being privately held, I said, well, there's always a way of doing an IPO and then you can get lots of money and uh, and everything will really be good for the growth going forward. And Ingmar looked at me and then put his head like this, which is typical from him, and he tells you that I don't really believe what you're saying. And his comment was, over my dead body, this is for the next generation. That was my first impression and my first learning about how to deal with Ingmar. So how did you save the situation? Because we know as a fact that you worked with Ingrid. <laughs> no, I think overall it must have gone well because I, I was employed and and, uh, and was there for almost 15 years altogether. So uh, a fantastic employment as such, a very special company in my life and, 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 and experience. Can you tell something about working with him and, you know, maybe your first year, you know, what happened when you observed as a new person and, you know, what's going on? And it's probably a bit different from the other corporations you worked before. Well, I may be first uh, to, to note that I did not report to him directly. Um, so I was in meetings. I had also private meetings with him, depending on typically finance issues and so on. But with Ingvar, the meeting started at seven o'clock in the morning and uh, by 8.30 or so, uh, typically done, and you thought that you were the only one that could solve the problems you discussed. Uh, he was had a good talent of how to get you to believe that you are the hero here that can do all of this for, for him and for IKEA. But? Well, no, that was, uh, that was a fact. And later on in my career, I learned that he often gave the same task to one or two people, and uh, then... We also realized this, and hence we kind of as a team came up with a solution rather than individually trying to impress on him as to what was good or bad or, or the right thing to do. So how did, how did you learn that? Because uh, IKEA, at least nowadays, is emphasizing teamwork and doing it together, and that's one <coughs> no, way of doing teamwork. <laughs> teamwork has always been there. Uh, we were all called co-workers as a plot. Uh, as opposed to employees or or, um, or 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 anything else in the internal vocabulary, and um, the team in in our case at the head office we were eighty to ninety people, so not that many. So obviously it was a fairly open dialogue and communication across the different functions and also within the function, of course. And you pretty much heard right away when somebody had had a meeting with him as to what was discussed and what were the, 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 the ideas and what should be done going forward. And sooner or later, you realize that he's testing the water in different ways. Part of his management uh, style, in a way, uh, and not a bad one, uh, I have to say. Um, 
but uh, also showing <coughs> that he wanted to make sure that all different angles of a solution were covered and maybe with slightly different background, people with different backgrounds commenting and looking at it based on their own experience and, and knowledge. How did you notice that he's been actually knowing about the issue from other people as well? Was he challenging or he was sort of commenting or? He was normally extremely knowledgeable about everything. He had, I think, which is a typical entrepreneur's uh, uh, kind of uh, feature, uh, extreme memory. He could pick up things from 20 years ago and say, well, no, that particular chair's uh, acquisition cost was X, and now it suddenly is twice that. How come? Uh, it should be at least half of what it was 20 years ago was sort of his starting point. And, but as an example of and remembering details, remembering discussions, remembering meetings, uh, quite extraordinary um, in, in, in my mind and, and very observant. Um, and I think that's the way he succeeded to do what he eventually did. And uh, I think part of an important aspect of, of leadership to, to know what's going on and both details and the big picture. Can you describe his leadership style? It's very difficult uh, to, to really summarize it because he his background was uh, in uh, farming in Småland in Sweden. Um, his uh, dad was a farmer um, and uh, maybe not the most successful farmer, if I understood it correctly, had taken quite a bit of loans and so on, which I think then colored Ingvar's thinking about loans and, and dependency on others when it comes to financial questions. Um, but very down to earth, very if you meet would have met him in the street, you thought it was the farmer who had come to town to to buy his uh, whatever meat or bread or, or or something as opposed to a multimillionaire or billionaire rather um, uh, very very uh, normally dressed, normal behavior, uh, never any fancy cars. he uh, obviously supported Volvo, but uh, often the model before the latest one or two before or whatever um, so um, that's he, he came from a and with a very common sense way of explaining or questioning what you were discussing and doing and and kind of saying well what about this and that and so on certainly no school book solutions uh, or, or as I sometimes call them McKinsey solutions uh, it was uh, well everything was homemade more or less or or, or sold at home. Uh, was it a good thing or was it a bad thing? Because what I heard, that he, obviously he was the sole owner, uh, so basically he, he could do all the decisions by himself. But did he do that? Was Did he have a team? Did How was it actually decision-making as well? Um, it was very much teamwork, but typically the final word was Ingvar's. And if there's something he didn't like that the team was pushing forward, he just postponed the decision and sometimes it could take two or three years to come to a conclusion on something where he his influence then impacted in in a way that he was happy with on that whatever could be a solution in a, a, a store could be a, a solution around a product or even a legal structure or financial solution if he uh, then he, no decision was made he didn't necessarily take part in the formal decision-making, but you knew that the question was blessed by him. 
uh, was he like a difficult to work with? Was it like you, you notice that the atmosphere changes in the office when when he's in the building and when he leaves the building? Was was there any difference between the sort of the public uh, perception of him and the actual working with him? And no, extremely approachable and 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 normal, if I put it that way. There was no feeling in the office. He actually stayed often overnight at the office. There were some overnight uh, rooms uh, at the office we had in Denmark. And um, I can tell you a little story about when he visited the second, I think it was the second store around Copenhagen, which he typically went to stores about two or three months after opening. Um, there are exceptions to that too, but but later on that's what happened during my time. Uh, he had agreed with the head of Europe, uh, a, a Swede, who came to the office and, and that they would leave at 8.30. He had, uh, it was well known that he often wanted to go at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock <laughs> to see the, the lorries coming in with the product in the morning and, and so on and so forth. So uh, Bengt, uh, who was the head of Europe at the time, he showed up and I was just about coming into the office around the, so, sorry, 7.30, not 8.30. And then, no, Ingmar couldn't be found anywhere. Uh, so uh, then finally we got hold of the chap who was in charge of the building, i.e. the office. And he said, oh, I think I saw Ingmar leaving at 5 or 5.30 or something this morning. Maybe he went to buy fish, uh, which he often went to the fishermen uh, out at, uh, in, in one of the small villages. So then uh, we said, well, better call the store and check because this now starts to smell like Ingmar has again jumped the gun. <laughs> And then we called, uh, or the receptionist called, and then um, uh, talked to somebody and said, no, there's nobody here like that. Then uh, she asked, is possibly the head of Denmark there? Oh, yes, he's here, and he's walking around in the warehouse with some old man. I don't know who it is. Well, that was Ingvar Kamprad. <laughs> <laughs> that shows his way of, of, of sort of operating uh, kind of undercover almost in a way, but making no big deal uh, out of himself or or who he is or, or what he represented in, in a way or his real power in a way. Uh, did you travel with him? Did you work, you know, you know, closely like extended period of times, like, you know, weeks or something when you were? No, I never, uh, some trips, yes, but not really in an extended way. Sometimes we had uh, joint meetings he wanted me to join him and then obviously that might have been a, a trip together um, i remember one flight to poland where there was a big big um in the 90s so past the berlin wall and all of that uh, we were all i think going there for a two three hundred people to go around some new um, facilities in poland and there were two people, one of our lawyers and, and a, a senior uh, European person who had to fly on. And in those days, if you did that, you had to uh, book a business class ticket. Everybody else had, of course, been very careful about making sure we sat as far away from the front of the aircraft as possible, <laughs> including Ingvar, because he happened to be in Denmark at the time, so he was also on the flight. And these two were sitting at the front, when Ingvar arrived and <laughs> came into the the aircraft, and of course he saw the two of them and and uh, said, "Oh, are you on some completely private visit here, or are you going to join us?" 
he never told anybody that you're doing something wrong. He always no, found no. a way of uh, uh, of explaining or asking in a way that you understood that uh, what the, what he meant. <laughs> Must have been a nice flight knowing that you know you're in the beginning of the trip. You already kind of you know. <laughs> well, it can be it, it can be embarrassing in a way, but of course Ingvar also understood the system, what you could or couldn't do. Yeah. So uh, uh, I read also I've been doing a little bit of research about in, uh, Ingvar and, and IKEA and um, for preparing for this uh, episode, and I also learned that he he was okay with mistakes, but you know until uh, you learn from from them. Was there? How was the culture of doing stuff? Because uh, IKEA was also growing. I think in the seventies was the huge expansion to different places. They even had a gas flow crisis because of the expansion and and uh, the crisis happening in in the seventies. Uh, you you came in the a little bit later, but I think that was also time of expansion. There was also time of a lot of change. So, is, uh, can you have some recollections of of what happened in IKEA in those times and maybe the mistakes and? Uh... Well, first of all, uh, it, it was clearly, and I not don't remember now if it is part of the. Uh, furniture dealer's testament or whatever the actual title is uh, that actually mistakes are allowed but you should also be quite ready to correct them um, but uh, I think the joke was more don't make the same mistake twice I, that, that's sort of bad news because then you don't using your own noodle to figure out uh, what to do or what not to do but no uh, the organization if we take that um, not very hierarchical, typically Swedish democratic sort of approach to to life. We were all uh, do with each other, i.e. first person singular, or second person singular, sorry. This was quite a challenge in Germany where, uh, you know, C <laughs> is uh, the norm and uh, some of them never got used to actually talking to their colleagues as if they were uh, almost family members. But in Sweden, as you know, that was uh, already implemented uh, at the time, and we certainly pushed for it, made it, the organization informal and also your freedom to act within your own sort of framework of your task was quite big. The decision-making hierarchy was, naturally for me, I was only sort of one level behind, below him, uh, quite quick. Occasionally, you needed to actually go to him or the board. There was a board in place. Uh, but a lot of things you could just do or talk and, and sort of even make a decision yourself. You felt it yourself that this is I can do. If it goes wrong, you may have a bit of a challenge. But uh, but but uh, but anyway, um, very open and informal also communication channels. If you need to talk to somebody about something and uh, learn more uh, to to conclude uh, what you would decide yourself, then. Uh, the internal competition, i.e., for higher positions and so on, was not really part of the uh, the choreography internally. Political infighting during my time, I never really experienced. Oh, did did the, the culture change? Because I think at the time you joined, there's probably was for five thousand people in the company, and uh, probably when you left, maybe I don't know the numbers, doubled, tripled, uh, and it was also a time that Ingvar was probably a bit more well, I wouldn't say hands off, but the company was getting enormously more 
bigger and, and there were more operations, there was more depth. So uh, it was not any more small farmers um, shop in, uh, in, in uh, southern Sweden. It, it was a cooperation in, in a lot of different places and uh, I guess not. No, no, I, I think you're right. Uh, uh, the 80s, I joined in 85. Uh, the 80s and so the latter part was uh, very much uh, internally uh, a, a structuring period where some formalities was put in place as to also decision making but also um, how one works, the, the country management versus the regional management. Uh, the company was growing in, in, in uh, sales uh, numbers 15% per year, which means that you're doubling uh, every five years or so. That's just the way 15% comes out. Um, and, and, and of course, that is a tremendous growth to find the product volumes, and these uh, new stores. At the time we built, when I was there, about five to seven stores per year, and many of them were in seven different countries. Some of them were the first store in that particular country. I, I was involved in opening up the UK, where I now live. That's a pure coincidence, but I was in here in the 87, 88, I think. It, Italy, a little bit later. Spain. And a few other countries. Um, so a lot happened during that, uh, from call it 85, 88, 86 to mid 90s. And then the rest is also history in terms of the continued growth into Eastern Europe, in particular, where we already were during my time. And then also Asia and, and everything else. So I think there's only two white spots uh, in the world from a store point of view, and that's Africa. And then also, I think Latin America is still without an I IKEA store. But that, I, I'm not sure. I haven't checked the, the latest years. So uh, maybe somewhat wrong there. How, how did uh, Ingvar manage to transfer his knowledge, his vision, all these things to these new locations, new people? Because there was, I, I think there's nowadays at least maybe 10,000, 20,000 different products and and there's so much happening and you know how do you keep it focused and how do you keep the original mission in place how do you make uh, everybody sort of uh, going to the same direction it obviously built very much on how should i say the team that was there from the beginning and then obviously has expanded and a new generation come in when, uh, when we, was the original team sort of starting to shift to the new one like the first generation or shift? That's actually during my time, uh, because somebody like uh, Hans Ax, who was a person who was involved in setting up the Stockholm office in, sorry, Stockholm store in 65, he retired somewhere around 88, 89, uh, as the head of Europe was his last uh, formal job. Um, and then a few other ones also on the finance side, there are one or two in Sweden who, then during that period uh, retired and they would have been there some even from the 50s. Uh, I think one of my close colleagues in the, or co-workers I should say, uh, in, in, in the IKEA world in Sweden, he I think had uh, employment number five or something like that. Uh, so uh, so uh, that happened and then 
that obviously these things are all gradual, little by little, as people age and 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 the organization grows, also from a management and 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 total uh, employee point of view. Um, could we check, for example, a little bit of the, uh, for example, the success factors? So, what, what what do you think? What made what made and makes and keeps uh, IKEA successful? Well, there's one thing we don't need to discuss. That's the flat back idea. That's uh, you know one of the the cornerstones of the success to start with. Maybe not today because it's also been copied in many many ways. Um, so that's one. One that maybe slightly less well known was IKEA's sorry Ingvar's actually way of looking at the Swedish furniture manufacturing um, environment in the late 50s, early 60s, when they actually saw that he was becoming a bit too successful for their liking. So they started to boycott him in different ways and, and not produce goods for him and his, his at that time, only one store in, in Elmholt. Uh, but then he, don't know all the details how he contacted Poland or went to Poland and well, I can and, fill in if you like to know, and, and the audience <laughs> as well, because uh, well, most of this stuff I have uh, learned and, and told is just basically what I was reading the IKEA Museum, which is an excellent resource. You should go and check it out. It'll probably takes uh, half of your weekend if you do that. Okay, <laughs> um, and hope I get most of uh, the facts right. But uh, it was actually yeah. That was a boycott. That was a part of it. Then there was also that uh, he started to have also supply issues because it was becoming the volume because so big and, and these two combined. Then he learned that there's a, a Polish delegation coming to, to Stockholm. So he actually booked and, and, and managed to convince them. And, and, and then it took a while and, and they actually went to Poland and, and started yep, to, yep. To, to, to look. And then he actually managed to secure a exclusive license for the Polish uh, furniture export to, to Sweden. And I think he also secured Norway. And then he was a, sort of a little bit of a hurry also to probably, I don't know, maybe that was part of the, the, the Stockholm plan as well, because not, now you have a <laughs> market yeah, yeah, to yeah, fill yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah no, no, it, it's uh, some of this I probably have heard, but successfully forgotten. Uh, but I know anyway that that was a major uh, success factor in securing good uh, uh, product at good price as well that was also in fact uh, you had to make a profit on on everything one way or the other yeah i think uh, that was one of his sort of really key from the beginning when he was uh, doing because he started actually mail order business so this is actually funny for people who are a bit younger and only see like internet <laughs> business he yes. was doing basically like drop shipping as well and he was yes. doing mail catalog so the catalog uh, was already in the beginning he was doing newsletters as well but those were actually physically letters sending them out yep. and people were ordering stuff and, and then they they were delivering uh, directly from the manufacturers as far as i understand uh, to the to yep. the customers and he was communicating low prices with high value so it was that's sort of oftentimes seen as a difficult or impossible. Either you have a low low price and not so good quality, but if you combine these two, and, and this was his almost in the beginning, I think, or maybe even from the very beginning. No, no, it's quite possible uh, that it would have happened already, but it was clearly something that during my time, and I think as I follow IKEA today, has continued, i.e. to give the customer value for money, that you feel that, you know, I paid X, but, uh, 
it was worth paying that X for it rather than saying I, I should have paid half of it or whatever. Uh, but Poland as, as, as such is an interesting one because I experienced Poland with Ingvar in the 1990 to be precise when we opened the first store in Warsaw. I haven't fully understood uh, Ingvar's, you could say, um, connection to Poland, uh, obviously knowing the facts about the early 60s and so on, but how he very much felt that Poland was a key to the success of IKEA growing in the 60s. Uh, and then when we met officials and so on in Warsaw in connection with that opening where he also was. Can I, can I pause because I know a little bit what you're going to say, but just for the audience to fill in. Yeah. So basically he went to the, in the 60s and now we have to remember this is the Soviet time. So it was behind Iron, Iron, Iron Curtain. So he was actually quite exceptional for the Polish people and, and the Poland, I think also other, other markets in the, in the Soviet side, because he could actually take huge volumes. He paid. Uh, because of the of the long term contracts, he was offering long term contracts. He was paying pretty much, you know, immediately. Uh, so he he gave, gave something that uh, the others were not offering for him, who who were actually coming from the West. He was also knowledge transferring. He was he said that though I, I read it in the article that he was smuggling uh, these tool parts for the machinery. So he was actually transforming the factories. He was teaching them how to make efficient production because in the beginning what was obviously the the, the the prices were really low the quality was extremely high and and this enabled that when he actually transferred the knowledge to these and sort of modernized these factories uh, that allowed uh, him to actually produce enormously good um, products in an extremely low price yeah. and this became the, the success factor for the 60s and for the Stockholm uh, that big store. Maybe we should actually talk about a little bit of that as as well a bit later. Mm -hmm. And and because the others couldn't do that, there was a huge competition in the in the Swedish market. Uh, it was raised to the bottom. Basically, everybody was offering stuff, and and you know it was just the quality was, was getting poor. And this was something you couldn't do in, uh, in in Sweden or Copenhagen or Denmark or other places. So that's sort of the basis, I would say, for the. He was so big customer basically for Poland and for the furniture there that you, you, you couldn't miss it. No, absolutely. And, and, and as we know, the Soviet Union times, for them to get hard currency, even if it was Swedish kroner, uh, was still hard currency compared to the Slotty, I guess, at the time, was a very valuable. But where I was coming to was he was really seen as a, almost like a legend in, in Poland, uh, the way he had operated, also the way he, I think, communicated with even during the Soviet times with the, the government and, and, and whatever authorities he was in contact in those days. This became very apparent in connection with this uh, opening uh, where there was a lot of dignitaries at the, the store opening, which normally you, you wouldn't see. Poland is a big country. Um, and uh, I have one particular story I could tell about the, this visit because I suspected that I will get a call to visit Warsaw, a connection with this, which I did. So I went to Warsaw and Ingvar said, we have to go and meet the finance minister of Poland. So I thought you should come with me. Okay, I said, that's fine, I'm here. So let's let's go. And and we went, uh, it was Ingvar, it was another board member. Uh, actually, he was the CEO of Volvo at one point. And then the Polish um, manager of IKEA Poland and me and the Swedish ambassador. 
So we went into this room, as you can imagine, these big rooms in those days in the uh, sort of still Eastern Bloc type of atmosphere. Uh, and then we sat there with the ambassador at the head of the table, and in comes a tall man, I think close to two meters tall, youngish, 40-something, so not really a Soviet chap as such, with his little secretary who was tiny. But anyway, that's just the comical side of it all. <laughs> so he sits down, but the, the thing that, because uh, I sat at one end of the, the four of us, um, reflected on was he clearly showed so much respect for Ingvar in the way he approached the discussion, of course, in a very formal way and, and all of this. And, and, and um, there's a story about him later on, but, but that's another story. Um, and then Ingvar said, well, let me introduce us then here on my side of the table. So he started, of course, he didn't need an introduction. He went to the, the two on the other side, uh, the head of Poland and the, the board member. And then he turned to me and said, and then I have my finance minister with me. <laughs> uh, so, so I thought you two could discuss these uh, financial matters, uh, you know, because uh, you're, you're sort of colleagues. And then this, uh, his name is Andrei Holekhovsky. He sort of sat up and said, mm, there's a big difference between him and me. I thought, yes, there you're going. Where he, we're going to be thrown out now to comparing <laughs> me to the finance minister of a country with 40 million people. And then there was a silence. And then he... He looked at Ingvar, but pointed at me and said, I think he's got more money than I do. <laughs> uh, which might have been true at the time, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of these moments where uh, there's a comical aspect of it all uh, as well. And then, of course, he had a sense of humor, this uh, Andre, very much so. But also where Ingvar, often in these kind of situations, he pushed some sort of funny story that he often had some sort of nose for that will work out okay. Because I don't think he had met this Andre person before either, so he didn't know if he was a serious sort of banker type or if he was a, could, could enjoy some good sense of humor. But it all, the meeting was then very, very easy and, and, and successful and so on. But just as a little also example of Ingvar's way of uh, both in a way uh, negotiating, but also communicating with people a bit always from the from sort of behind or below a little bit, as opposed to trying to patronize people. So what I take from here was that he actually didn't want to be the lead. He wanted you be the guys talking to technical and he could sort of step back and that's right that's give right. the final word if needed but yes. otherwise like you you guys talk and i'm just uh, sipping coffee here or you know going yeah. to buy some fish <laughs> exactly right and it of course uh, made me feel good as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the finance minister now you have a new piece of title you know, exactly <laughs> But uh, right. IKEA was quite big already. If checking the Polish GDP at the time, you know, who was bigger? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> if we would have checked uh, the government's uh, bank account and, and IKEA's bank account, who had more money under their control, I, I leave that uh, to somebody else to study. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking about money, I understood that um, IKEA was... Well, that probably comes from also from the Ingvar Kamprad, but you know, you you had your own bank and you were giving loans to the banks, you were raiding banks. So can you tell about, you know, how, how the financing worked as well on the cash flow because the expansion happened and 
obviously selling a lot of stuff with cheap prices, but was it highly profitable as well? And how was that side <laughs> of the business as well? Um, I think um, part of it, I, I feel I, I cannot disclose, but I could say like this, that first of all, the huge success and growth of uh, IKEA from probably early 80s, so just some years before me, if I simplify it, it uh, was based on internal cash flow. And I should add to that that most uh, of the land and the stores that were built in those days were built uh, and owned by IKEA. No leasing arrangements or anything like that. That was almost part of the policy that, well, if we can't afford a store, then we don't build it. It's again, a, a, as I call a bit of old farmer's philosophy that you buy the new tractor when you have first had a good harvest. Uh, and that's very much was part of, and I'm pretty sure today, still a very conservative approach to finance in terms of uh, taking on loans, because he was also, and IKEA was concerned about becoming dependent on lenders. Uh, I've seen it in many other cases where, you know, at one of my jobs, I had five bankers in my office 24 hours a day for about six months because the company was bankrupt. And they didn't know business, but they uh, wanted to make sure that uh, nothing crazy was going on. So fair enough. But that was the opposite, very much so. And yes, we started to uh, put credit valuations on bankers uh, towards the end of the 80s, uh, the Kuwait war coming and all of this um, in the Middle East. Uh, and we said, well, who of these guys might not survive a big catastrophe? And uh, the bankers got their nose out of joint, is, I think is a very very sort of a modest way of, or mild way of, of explaining it because then, you know, credit valuations today, Moody's and, and Standard and & Poor's and so on is obviously um, normal life. Uh, but that was a bit of a new thing because we felt we had so much money out to sometimes fairly modest banks, not small ones, not local ones, that uh, we had to spend some time on thinking about how much how many billions should we put with this bank or that bank? Because it's not a question of millions uh, that we were dealing with. Uh, were there any financial in innovations? Because that's the side you were looking at as well, you know, in the expanse. Are there some tips and something, you know, what Ingvar had and, you know, you haven't seen it other places or <laughs> something, you know, for, let's say, these hopefully more successful <laughs> startup founders as well who have this positive uh, problem that, you know, what to do with all this cash and how, how to grow without any bankers involved? Well, let, let me give you a, a little comment on that and then we'll leave it at that, I think, because uh, otherwise I'll... I'll go into details that I don't feel really um, I have any right to talk about. But uh, Ingmar often said, well, we sell in Deutschmarks, which was obviously the strong currency of Europe in those days, and we buy in Swedish krona, and that's a pretty good combination. <laughs> buy in cheap currency, sell in, in, in hard currency. Uh, and, and obviously, the world doesn't operate quite like that, but in a simplified way, that was maybe a coincidence, but then it became a fact. And, and 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 so on. Um, so yes, we had obviously a, a large foreign exchange exposures and, and and flows and so on. Not least when Asia came into the picture, um, and and fairly large uh, large volumes. Uh, so that had to be divided among a number of banks to make sure we didn't uh, 
again, taking too many risks. And also some banks said we can't take more of this or that or whatever because of their own balance sheet. But anyway, um, uh, fascinating times and interesting times. And um, we could innovate a lot. Uh, sometimes we had to obviously go and ask for um, permission in a way uh, or decision because the numbers were just so big that if it would have gone wrong, it could have been fairly harmful. The frugality is sort of a trademark of uh, IKEA in some sense, probably not officially, but but at least uh, in, in, in formal sense. How did you see it in the regular life? And, and because the, the low cost means that you also need to keep track of the costs when you're building stuff in the processes everywhere. Can you describe you know, how, how that came and is it different from the other places you have worked? Um, yes, I could say different in the sense, obviously every company wants to make the best possible profit they can make. Um, but in every single thing you did at IKEA, the cost aspect of it was the first aspect. Um, you know, what should I do? How should I uh, go from A to B? What is the most efficient way from the IKEA viewpoint? It may not be the most efficient way from, for you as an individual. I spent many Friday nights out in Europe when it was cheaper to fly back on Saturday morning. And family was at home, you know, and so on. Uh, so that through everything, uh, every single item on the profit and loss account, in a way, um, uh, if it was a cost item, it could be uh, salaries, not that we were bad at paying, but we were also making sure that we didn't have more personnel than we needed. Because headcount is also a, a way of, of, of either increasing or reducing your cost. And <coughs> so, Cost was through everything. At the other end of it, you could say tax was seen as a cost, not a liability to the society. Uh, one can have some uh, discussion around that as to where we are, but uh, it's still for a company. It's a it's a cost item that uh, uh, heavily debated today and has always been as to uh, all kind of solutions, left, right, and center. But that's probably the biggest and maybe... Uh, uh, um, to my family and to some other people around me, uh, not always a good learning, but certainly something that uh, was emphasized and, and sort of imprinted on me during my IKEA years, that uh, you don't come become uh, successful financially by spending money. Uh, it's more by spending wisely. And, and then investing money is a slightly different story and also that you need to think through. Every store... Every time a store was built, it was. I sat on the investment committee. Um, every single item was gone through. Can we do it better, cheaper? Uh, flooring, for instance, in a store. What is the best floor that looks okay from a customer point of view? Because normally we don't walk around looking at the floor. We look at the products. Um, but also um, that it's uh, easy to build and easy to maintain and so on and so forth. That's just an example of all items were gone through and also obviously, because without saying infrastructure in a store, you don't have toilets all over the place. You try to keep them in, in one central location the best possible way. But where is that convenience from also a customer point of view, the best place to have them? Not Einstein science, but uh, part of the kind of um, 
uh, list of, of, of checks that were made every time. Sounds like that is actually a balancing act because there's also the quality side. You have to provide customer value and, and yes. it's not a low, inefficient and in, in, inconvenient. It, it's actually supposed to be the opposite as well. So it, it cannot be the cheapest option always. No, so it, but, but at the same time, you, we also try to create a, an image of not being very expensive. So the customer expectation was not seeing, you know, uh, very high quality uh, taps in the toilet or, or, or on the floor in some sort of marmor or whatever, um, or marble. Uh, uh, that, 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 that you are absolutely right. It's a balancing act like everything else in the end. You want to connect with your customer at the right level to, with whatever you do. So how, how do you communicate that to the employees? You say that you had a, quite a bit of a leeway to do things you know, based on your chargement. So uh, how, how to pick those and how to monitor those and, and knowing that you, you do the right thing here? I, I think we had uh, pretty good controls of our cost levels, as we did of our income levels, by the way. Um, <laughs> Even in those days, before all kind of digital solutions and so on, uh, everything was pretty much known the next day, at least within a week. We have to remember, we go back here to the 80s in my time anyway, um, and, and then we operated you know, in, 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 in a different sort of ways of collecting information to a total group view and, and, and so on. But as an example um, of cost consciousness and way of operating. We knew that everything being right, we we're going to grow about 15% on the top line per year. But we always budgeted our cost line at about 7%, which in itself led to somewhat efficiency every year. Yes, you might end up at 10%, but you still had, had a, a gain against your top line by then finding solutions where you uh, change tasks or, or, or combine tasks or, or whatever the case may be. In the Comrades, the testament of a furniture dealer, that's the that's the name for it, which actually you can find also in that, uh, I can put it actually in the show notes as well, there are these nine points. And um, he mentions that as, as number three, profit gives us resources. The aim, the aim of our effort to build up financial resources to reach a good result in the long term. And there's another point where he says, this is the number five, simplicity is a virtue. Exaggerated planning is the most common cause of a corporate death. So, <laughs> so no bureaucracy, uh, but you, you know, you should have to make profit and, and still keep it low and, uh, you know, improvise and do it differently and don't cut the middleman and uh, yes. think different. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> bureaucracy, he called bureaucracy. I mean, uh, he was an absolute uh, enemy of a bureaucratic way of operating. And there, in my time, there were twice, I think, special internal campaigns of simplifying things, cutting, cutting out maybe even extra layers of, of, of management, what have you. Um, and, and I was uh, very focused. Special committees were set up to find solutions to different, be it the supply chain solution or, or something on his insistence that we are becoming too bureaucratic or bureaucracy, as he would have called it. Uh, uh, he, he was a very much an entrepreneur in that respect and said, if we decide something today, we should be able to do it, if not today, at least tomorrow. 
uh, as, as opposed to having five committees going through it and discussing it for a year. So can you describe the the atmosphere in the company? Was it uh, inspiring, sort of you are in a mission, positive type of way? Because if the cost issue is always there and you have to sort of, you know, be, you know, stay overnight and you're rather with, with your family and, you know, it sounds like that it, it could be also interpreted in a sort of restrictive and, and controlled environment and sort of not the most uplifting place to work. I, 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 to me, I can only speak for myself and, and some colleagues I've discussed this with uh, from that time. It was actually, it was so much part of the culture that when you did something like that, you felt proud about finding the solutions. Every time I went to visit a country management or, or, or whatever internally and discussed certain solutions or, or whatever, on my way home, I often did my own profit and loss as to did I make any money during this trip for the group, i.e. the solutions, my, 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 my trip cost X, did I do at least 10 times that in terms of savings or further income or whatever it may be uh, for the group. That whole cost consciousness, and that's very much small in, in, in Sweden. It's a bit like Scotland is known for being very frugal in, in the UK and, and maybe the best international example. That was so built into us, and Ingvar never forgot to bring something into a discussion about saving or or not spending, or why do you buy that, why don't you buy that instead, or, or something like that. Was the hot dog concept family uh, already <laughs> on your time? <laughs> no, that came during my time. Uh, in fact... Uh, you may remember back in the late 80s, people still used checks, and obviously cash, but checks in particular to pay for. So, and I w- had the privilege of then putting together a process of measuring how long it took for people to go through the, the tills from check payments, cash payments. Cards had started to show up to some extent at the time, but still fairly novel among normal people. Uh, and the queues were long. Uh, people had obviously bought a lot. So, uh, so, uh, and also all these um, sensors and things. No, nothing. It all had to be do man, be done manually. And then uh, I remember well the meeting when this all is discussed and so on and so on. He said, "Here you have a family coming through the tills, and they've been arguing for half the day. And obviously they had lunch also and ordered some meatballs or whatever." And and then they come through and they are in, on a bad mood. So let's give them a hot dog for a very, very low cost. And that's where the concept of the little kiosk at the end of the store came. It started really with just hot dogs for almost next to nothing. But there also Ingvar said, well, if I only make one uh, uh, Swedish öre, or one cent per uh, in profit, that's fine. If I make many of those, that will also be real money. And that's... Uh, Again, it was his thinking, his how should I try to make the family somehow happy when leaving. The last memory was that hot dog or maybe some sweets for the children or something like that. Ice cream, you know. Can we walk through the the store from the beginning and maybe you can give some comments, you know, you know, these sort of little things 
what, what actually are the concept of IKEA and the customer focus and, and all these, which are actually sort of the key factors also, because it's the, it's a showroom as well, you know, so it's, it's the place where the yes. most of the money is made. Uh, I could start with, first of all, my own experience of this together with uh, Ingvar. Um, during my time, he often went to stores after three, four, five months, depending on trips and so on. You were more than welcome to join those visits, which was often a group of 10, 15 people, store management, the country management, and a few other regional managers, and then some odd people like me, if I happened to be in that location. But by the way, was it ad hoc or sort of planned? No, so? no, it was more planned, and you knew about them. No. And, and of course, sometimes you also planned your own trips too, because these were real experiences. This is the only retail school I've been through in my life was Ingvar's visit to a store. <laughs> uh, <coughs> and, and it started around seven in the morning on the parking lot. The customer drives in. Is the parking easy? Is the signage good, bad, blah, 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 blah. You come to the store, you go in, and then you start every single step. And, without, and he shakes hands with everybody in the store. And he often complained, my hand is really hurting tonight because I've been sent, well, two, three, four hundred people, depending on the size of the store. And then you go through everything. Uh, you go out to the loading base, you go through the office, you go through all the different sections in the store, toilets, you name it. And then out on the parking lot again around nine o'clock in the evening. Wow. Full day. Something. That's a very full day. You have to be ready to have a pizza at the end of the day at the most, uh, if you're lucky. Uh, so there was no meat, uh, meatballs in the in no, the no, no, no. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes, of course. <laughs> there was there was lunch. There was lunch, and that was in the restaurant, of course. <laughs> checking it out, and uh, most of the people in who were serving would know who they were serving, <laughs> uh, and, and so on. Although no, most people would have known that it was a the, the big visit, but no particular preparations had been made. Store management wanted to show the store the way it was on a daily basis. Cleanliness is another very important aspect of IKEA stores. Not lots of papers on the floors and, and so on. Everything you, you kind of almost get used to walking around picking up small even pieces of paper or whatever just to... Uh, so, so all that was uh, evaluated and uh, thoughts about solutions on the shelving and maybe even new things and old things as one. Uh, one that comes to mind, but uh, but uh, not now. And then out on the parking. So that's uh, a day with Ikea. Sorry, with Ingvar in a store. I, I've learned so much about retail and how he was so customer focused. His whole, <coughs> excuse me, thinking started in a way in two end. That is where you design a product, and then that that product is sold in the best possible way and also meets the expectations of the customer or consumer. Uh, everything in between was sort of just discipline, if I put it put it simply. Um, very, very uh, fascinating days. I think I did 10 or so of those uh, during my time. And as I said, it's my only retail training I've had. And uh, was uh, I don't think there's any better training, actually. So how did it work? Is he observing and commenting or was he letting you guys do the work like no, in no, the no. finance he, minister way or what no. was this his <laughs> domain now <laughs> no i was uh, me and, and and people like me would be very silent and just following 
possibly there could be a question about something that would be a financial question that comes up somewhere in between. Oh, what's this and that and so on. But but most of it is really the how is the layout of the store in relation to consumers and 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 which product is where and so on. Um, then of course there's the other side of it, i.e., how the consumer experiences the store and how to get the consumer to start to to shop. And there were these, um, I don't know an English term for it, actually, slopocheften, it's in Swedish. Um, sort of open your wallet, I think, is actually a term used in English. So always at the beginning, I think still today in IKEA stores, you will find some big baskets with something that costs next to nothing. And you say, oh, that would be good to have. You may never use it, but it's good to have. And it costs nothing, so you buy it, and then you have made your first purchase in a way. Putting it, of course, in an IKEA bag, which is hanging there right next to it. And then psychologically, at least that was his thinking, and I can't uh, sort of uh, say anything else. He, uh, he made people kind of ready, open their wallet so that now I can buy the next one, and the next thing, and the next thing, and so on. Uh, and then... Well, you see it in many stores today, of course, all kind of special campaigns here and there that sort of are in strategic positions so that you can't avoid them uh, as a consumer. So he actually opened his first uh, showroom, and, and this was also the, by the, going back to the 50s, actually, when he was actually doing everything by himself. I think it was the first... Uh, Ten years, he was basically doing running the running the show more or less, you know, yeah. hands on, and that's where the experience came. The showroom was also the the way to actually to demonstrate the quality and getting people in. And he he wanted to serve coffee to make people feel more comfortable. Then he realized that you need sofas so they can relax a bit and they can see how the sofa looks there. And that's where the how the showroom came about basically. Well, there was actually uh, some factory he bought, and and uh, then there was a lot of space, so he actually sort of put uh, living rooms in there and, and like things like that. And then later on came the children because because that was the important part of the uh, IKEA customer base, families and children. So you have to entertain the children. And then came the restaurants. And uh, was there something while you were there that you know was part of that innovation that because what I get that Ingvar was always thinking exactly like, okay, if you walk there, are you tired? How do you spend more time in there? You know, what what would be the optimal way of doing? It's also the layout that's almost like every 20 meters you have to turn. Uh, you have different colors. There's the harmony, yes, the balance, yes. the pricing, and then the warehouse comes just the later. First comes the inspiration and and, yes. and also the meatballs. Uh, I think they... They were experimenting with the uh, recipe like three years before it became the, the famous meatball uh, the thing still uh, available on the, on the shops. Yes, and at least at the beginning when the meatball concept or the new restaurant concept was put in place early, must have been early 90s, uh, all those meatballs were produced in Sweden for the whole entire IKEA world. So how many tons of meatballs one supplier <laughs> Produced, I have no idea, but it must be lots of them. <laughs> so, so it, it's, it's it's no. But you mentioned uh, children's IKEA, for instance. That was something that was at a store visit where I happened to be also present, where IKEA started to mumble about this and say, "Well, here is a mother now with two children who can't be in the ballroom," which was obviously an interesting concept in itself to get rid of 
some children at certain age. So I would need the little... Now, she wants to look at something, but they are have to keep half an eye on them all the time and so on. So some sort of little play area. And maybe I could then put in some children's products here. So they start to play with them, and then they like them, and then they will want mother to mom, mom to buy them. And, and that's where the children's IKEA concept, which was then... That took a couple of years, I think, for to de- be developed. We got to find a, the place, the location for it in the store. The whole product range and so on had to be uh, developed. Uh, but it's very much a part of the IKEA, I think, uh, store today and, and, and product range. Yeah, what I heard that it, it was Ingvar writing a letter with his blog, uh, you know, handwriting, yes, and it yes. was like, hey, we need a children range we need to invest on this and and it was like okay we you got to get them early so you you start really like you know the few years old uh, children yes, and, yes. and they get to know the concept and, and then they become you know having their own families and this is the long long-term planning that no but i know myself when my children were uh, four five six something like that seven and uh, the ballroom was an attraction itself going to ikea was for them going to the ballroom and having fun, you know, uh, and 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 and, uh, and and obviously under supervision, but still uh, that was part of IKEA for them was a ballroom, not necessarily the rest. <laughs> <laughs> How did IKEA differ uh, from the Swedish concept and Swedish version? To if you if you traveled around the world, and because there were franchises. Uh, so they were run by local people, but you know, I think some of them were were they also directly, but they were, but, but you know, it, it's not a one unified concept in a sense that everything is run and done uh, no. by IKEA. So so there are differences and it, it, it varies a bit around the world. That, that's correct, but I don't know today. So I, I this is a bit history now, but in those days the franchise stores. There was one which was actually family-related in Singapore. No, Hong. I forget. I must have been Hong Kong. Uh, and then Australia was on franchise, uh, which is now, as far as I know, fully controlled by by IKEA some years ago already. And but they were not that many. Most of them were uh, run and owned by the IKEA um, furniture business, as uh, it was internally known as. Um, so, but then again, the concept following was reasonably tight. Not as you say, hundred percent. They could have been. They may not have had meatballs, for instance. But uh, <laughs> but but uh, they, the product range in most cases, and they had certain freedoms. I don't know that area very well, but they were quite. They were not that many of the total number of stores. Do you remember something about the sustainability? There were some crises also over the years, and, and these were learning opportunities for, for Ingmar and, and what, for the corporation as well in, in a lot of ways. So the, the IKEA you see nowadays, uh, a lot of that, if, if you go through the history, became out of necessity. You know, there was something which didn't work. You needed to do something. For example, the Stockholm, uh, the, the largest, it was the Europe's largest uh, store when it was opened, was it 65, and it burned down five years later. 
So you needed to actually do a lot of remodeling and, uh, and, and, and that was uh, then an opportunity to do things better and, and then it became the first one. And uh, by the way, what was the name? Uh, can you tell the name of the, the Stockholm uh, store? You know, because the region was also oh, named yeah. by the incident that happened in the 40s. Um, it's Kungens Kurva. Um, yeah. Uh, what does it mean in for the English speakers if they don't know uh, the, what that that's the, in, um, that's a Swedish word? It's oh, well, Kung is a king. It's the 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 bend in the road in a way. The king's bend in the road. If I would explain, <laughs> because the king's bend could be misinterpreted. <laughs> 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 but uh, but the, and I, it, that was a funny. I obviously wasn't there at the time, but I heard it from Ingvar and also from Hans Sachs, who was the first store manager there and one of the. Yeah, the old guys. Um, uh, as to people in Sweden, thought he had he had definitely gone completely crazy at the time because building something twenty kilometers outside Stockholm, you know, we are going back to the sixties. Uh, that will never work, and it's been probably one of the most successful stores ever in IKEA's history. Um, and and today, obviously, Kungens Kurva is almost part of central Stockholm. <laughs> <laughs> and there's actually a lot of stories about this and i think this is part of the success of ikea as well and thinking about you know differently stuff uh the well what actually happened to the 40s was that it was the sweden's king who was uh wanting to drive fast and the driver actually lost oh, yes, control yes, of the yes, car yes. and it, it went to a ditch and that was sort of the informal name for the place and it had a different name i don't remember the name and then when ikea you know secured the location uh the potato field strategy as it's, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I guess yeah. called later on so you you buy basically a cheap land almost like you know well cost barely cost anything land yes. and then you build it there and, and and then they asked from the local community there, uh, the municipal, that hey, could we actually name this? Because we want to be, you know, we are not like the stiff people here. We are we are like the you know the, the country country folks. So could we actually call it like you know everybody knows it? And 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 then the, the municipality say that yes, you can do that. But you have to you have to change those signs. So they needed to you know pay those signs <laughs> and that was the cost of you know having their own place the other thing if i add uh, still then you can go on and uh, explain for example the store uh was that uh, and I, I think this puts uh, sweden also into a quite unique position after the second world war uh sweden was not exactly in the place where the central uh, and the rest of the europe was and uh, they also started to have that uh, welfare state concept Volkshemmet. yes and uh and what I also learned was that that particular fro uh, place in, in Stockholm or, you know, outside of Stockholm, at the time they opened the store, the government was obviously subsidizing a lot, uh, supporting owning your own place, owning your own apartment. So there was like 100,000 new apartments built around that store, which probably helped a little bit with, uh, with, the, with the demand. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. You, you, you bring back memories that I've probably would have forgotten completely like the Kung and Skurva where it came from and and so on but it, it's 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 so clever and then if we go to the store as you already alluded uh, as you know um, Ingvar did uh, made a, a visit to the US in somewhere around 1960 uh, and and visited a number of places but to make a long story short he also visited visited the Guggenheim Museum in New York 
And as those who have been there, it goes around in circles in a way. You start from the top and then you walk your way slowly down. And this is the concept that the Stockholm store, Kungenskurva, actually was built on. Uh, so you can... The, and the, the idea, the way he has explained it and the way I've heard it was that when you are in a store like that or a place like that, you feel, you know all the time where you are. You go in a normal IKEA store and you get lost in about 20 meters. Uh, <laughs> That's the purpose, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and there's only one way of going. Or, or that's yeah, the way yeah, you don't know the shortcuts. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way it used to be, but, uh, but that, that was an interesting. And there's only one other store that I know has the same concept as Kungens Kurva, which is, was built in the 90s, late 90s in uh, Chicago, just outside Chicago, with an open big atrium in the middle so you walk around, and I can see that you have a feel for where you are all the time, uh, even if you go through all the exhibitions and whatever it might be. Going back to the success factors and, and, and to the fact that uh, Ingvar was obviously not just uh, living in his bubble, he was traveling, and even though there was no internet, well, maybe in our bubble, you know, that was the U.S. Defense Department at the time, um, he traveled to, like you mentioned, he went to the US in 61 or something around those times. So around the time when, when, you know, he really started to have the expansion of the, of the business as well. And he went to see the competition. He went to see the retail space. He really benchmarked everything in US. It was three weeks traveling and he was complaining that, uh, his father was accompanying him and he was snoring on the, on the backseat all the time. And he was so <laughs> enthusiastic the whole trip. And then Ingvar was so tired because I guess he was doing all the, all the talking and all the work more or less there, but he, he wasn't too impressed, but, but there was also, and, and this is something I digged out, uh, Walmart, Sam. Sam Walton, who, who, who is the founder, he started, I think, two or three years later than Ingvar. And he had a pretty much the same concept, starting with the, with the low prices, also doing it in a, in a fashion that you, you are not going to the city centers, you're going outside. And uh, so Ingvar was aware of this, I, I would assume. So, so it was not like isolation, but, you know, he was really like, you know, competing on a worldwide basis, who, do, who does things the best. Yes, all I know about, uh, I obviously know Sam Walton, uh, or not Sam Walton, but Walmart rather quite well from, from other jobs I've had. Uh, but I know that the two have met, did meet, in the, must have been in the 60s at some point, Sam Walton and, and Ingvar Kamprad. I don't know anything more about the meeting and the content of it and so on. But uh, he did occasionally in some meetings refer to, to Sam Walton and, and, and discussions with him about various things. Because yes, the concept, the idea, the thinking, you know, after the war, everything at uh, cars, of course, America was further with, with the uh, uh, family car and so on than big parts of Europe at the time. But, um, but anyway, um, another very successful retailer, obviously, Walmart. How did he see competition? What was competition? Good question. I have to say that uh, I don't really have an answer to... Uh, uh, as you may know, this is uh, no company secret or anything else. Uh, IKEA acquired Habitat in the UK in 1990. And the thinking behind that at the time was my boss, Anders Moberg and Ingvar and so on, to actually create a center of the city, IKEA. Um, 
which wasn't terribly successful. I think eventually uh, Habitat was sold, uh, maybe 10 years ago, something like that, if I remember correctly. Um, I was quite involved in the project when it was acquired, um, but um, the whole thinking, I think, turned out to be a bit false, because if you're in a city center, you have logistics costs of very different nature than going out to the potato field. Uh, parking, you know, when can you uh, se uh, deliver and so on to stores like that, and and probably also employ employment costs and so on, and and certainly rents, or if you buy the the land, or the the buildings would be of very different magnitude than a Kungens Kurva in nineteen sixty five or sixty three, whatever, to take as an example. So so um, now we have uh, talking about Stockholm. I think there's now a and I probably will go out of curiosity to take a look at it towards the end of uh, next week uh, when I'm in Stockholm, uh, as to a central Stockholm on Hamgatan. Uh, there's a, a IKEA different concept. They are also developing something on Oxford Street in um, London, uh, which I don't don't think it's opened yet, but it will be soon. And and very different concept with the whole digital world, the multi-channel type of thinking, and so on that is today commonplace in, in retail, um, very much part of the whole offering to, to the consumer. Uh, before we leave the IKEA and, and go to the other topics, is there anything you would like to comment, give some stories or something, comment on maybe the, the entrepreneur from uh, startup entrepreneur starting his company in 1943 and running it successfully and becoming the richest man according to some sources 2004 <laughs> in the world yes no it, it, uh, i think his way of staying independent in his own thinking uh, daring to try things we talked about the boycott in sweden uh, in poland and and all new concepts, uh, the way they figured out the flat pack, for instance, which was novel at the time uh, in the 50s in, in Salins, well, actually almost worldwide, I think. And, and that this ingenuity, um, to me, he was the best finance man I have ever met either, also, by the way. And then the chief lawyer who, who had a lot to deal <laughs> with him, he, he also said, He's the best lawyer I have ever met because he 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 approached things from a common sense point of view, and there was no stupid question in his opinion about anything, and he normally had a very good uh, nose for for things. Actually, let me tell me one story here about IKEA that shows you the no the commercial nose of him of his. But just this, he 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 had a, a way of approaching all kinds of things in a very very structured. Uh, common sense, bundfornuft, uh, as it would be known as in, in Swedish um, way, and, and hence often got to the to the key issues as opposed to what the highly educated people try to tell you, um, and, and often have complicated life uh, due to their education. If I <laughs> uh, take me that freedom to comment on my, myself as well, <laughs> uh, but th there's one story that. Um, I never forget, and that was, but I've been early, 92, 93, we're sitting in a meeting, and often when the meeting ends, we have four or five people with him in the, in the, in the room, uh, you often then start to chat about this and that, and all kind of comments come out, and then, and, uh, 
Ingvar said, you know what, if I wouldn't have IKEA, I would go into pet accessories. This is 92-93. Well, everyone owns a dog or cat or both today and spend millions on anything from food to, to all kinds of uh, different things that they think is important for pets to have. Right or wrong, but that he saw already then because he never traveled in taxis, he traveled in buses. He, uh, he was very sort of cl stayed close to what was going on in the society. And that's, I guess, another learning that try to avoid when you're successful to, to forget your, your background or your basis and, and how normal people live. And, and that's a really valuable uh, key point because he had a suit, he had a Porsche in the beginning, he, he got rid of those. He, you know, if you travel coach everywhere, if you travel with Metro, you see the people, yes. you see the yes. IKEA packs, you realize that if you have to carry the flat pack, that, you know, yes. is it actually possible to do that? What's happening? How people are reacting? Did he actually do also home visits, like, you know, really observing what's happening in the regular people's I, I, lives? I, no, I don't think in that way. It was done in IKEA very much so, uh, to learn, especially in new countries, how people lived, the size of their flats or houses and, and solutions. We all, cultures have slightly different behaviors and, and, and preferences and, and so on. Let me finish this then with another story about buses and so on. This was a... Uh, some sort of reception in Hong Kong, if I remember correctly, where all the big dignitaries from Sweden, including the Swedish king, was there. Uh, those names you would know, Wallenberg, you know, Jullenhammer, and uh, head of Electrolux at the time, I can't remember. But anyway, really big, dark suit, white shirt, you know. Like the Rockefellers of, of US, you know, that, of Sweden, kind of, you know, yeah, yes. that type of and people. And then all of them standing, they're coming in their big black limousines and so on, one, one at a time, of course. Uh, and then standing there, half circle around the king. And then uh, a bus stops outside this uh, <laughs> event. Regular uh, service bus. Uh, regular service, and Ingvar <laughs> comes out, of course, dressed appropriately. No question about that, because he was a guest. What, what is the proper? Because you know, once again, informal, and, and you know, was he actually having? No, no, he respect. Uh, if he was somebody's guest, he he respected the circumstances. Maybe not the most cut out suit. It could be twenty five years old or something, but proper, <laughs> and good. Uh, forgive, forgive my 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 joking here a bit, but anyway. So he walked in through the doors, and the king sees him. He turns around, lays all the Jullenhammers and Wallenbergs and sits, uh, stands and chats with Ingmar for 10-15 minutes. Uh, that shows also how he was respected at the other end of, of, of the society. Uh, and, and, and so on. So it was, anyway, interesting man. Uh, I feel that I had a real privilege and honor to be able to work so closely with him and, and experience a lot of different things uh, with him and also hearing stories that that my, my colleagues would, would have experienced. What is your favorite word? My favorite word? <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I've, I've drawn a blank on that one. Uh, I don't, can't think of any favorite word as such. No, sorry. Uh, I, I, I can't give you a good answer. Well, let's try another one. What is your least favorite word? 
Oh, yes, that, that, it's not quite the word, but it's uh, um, low value for money. Reverse of IKEA, I guess. <laughs> yes. No, no, it, it's, uh, it sits there in the background, and, and I learned that during my IKEA years. Uh, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, happiness, happy people, good company. What turns good, you off? Good jokes, good jokes. And what turns you off? Uh, sadness, uh, illness. I mean, we went through COVID here recently. Uh, uh, war, not least. We hope we had passed that stage of, of civilization, but clearly we haven't. Um, very, very sad. We are all at war in Europe, in my mind, today. Um, and we can see it on our cost of livings and everything, even if... Helsinki is not bombed, or Tallinn, or London, or any Frankfurt, or anything else. But uh, the lifestyle we have to adopt to, I think, will be not that different from a war. And that makes me very sad and frustrated because I can't do much about it. What is your favorite curse word? Perkele. Uh, what I learned word? that I, I learned that from Jorma Ollila. <laughs> What sound or noise do you love? Um, ABBA music. What sound or noise do you hate? When a machinery doesn't work and it makes all kind of noise that shouldn't be there. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Um, if I look at, I probably would have been a pretty good lawyer as well. What profession would you not like to do? Singing. No, I take that back, sorry. Uh, drummer. If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? Disruptive. Uh, like IKEA, if we take that as a startup in 1943, although it didn't start uh, as it is today. Uh, but a, a, what I would see as a disruptive, trying to change the way we operate in one way or the other would be, uh, and that's why I have also tried to do my direct investments myself in startups, is the, something that disrupts business. Any I'm running low on, on power, just so you know. Yeah, we're running uh, to the end of the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, conversation no, as well. Uh, any final words to the audience? I think uh, entrepreneurs in particular, um, honesty and and seeing realities, listening to the people around you, I think can be very helpful. I know many of them are extremely opinionated and they know what is best, but it may not always be that you're completely right. So uh, that openness to influence what at the same time believing in your own strategy i think uh, has to be a it's a balancing act but it can be very valuable to also listen thank you hanul so much for sharing your experience stories uh, with us today and thank you everyone for joining today until next time